And so we're now in the heart of the second month retreat. For those of you who were here the first month, you're well into the heart of the retreat. But for those of you who came um, almost just about two weeks, less than two weeks ago, I'm really experiencing a shift in the field now. And what I'm noticing, and you know, this is general, it's not everybody, and it's never everybody. Everybody's in their own process, on their own journey. But generally, what I sense is that people are much calmer. There's much more settling. And one of the reasons for that settling is because the hindrances are obeyed. The hindrances die away, for the most part. Those strong mental uh, uh, experiences that we talked about at the beginning of the strong wanting and the, the not wanting, the uh, sleepiness and the restlessness and the doubt. And they're called hindrances, as we said, because they actually cover over our mindfulness. We actually get lost in them. They, they obscure our clarity and our ability to actually see clearly what's happening. And so the hindrances start to settle, and we can experience in ourselves more calm and ease, which then really sets the foundation for us to begin, in some ways, really begin this uh, practice of insight, really looking more deeply into our experience. Today, when I was speaking to somebody in an interview, and they were talking about this clarity of mindfulness, it occurred to me um, that there's, there's a, a changing of the guard. That's what came to me. There's a changing of the guard. And I don't know whether that's because I lived in England for a long time, but there was a sense that rather than the ego self being on guard, the one who's really directing and controlling and making sure, you know, things are going a certain way. There's a shift to the mindfulness being on guard. You know, now the, the self, the sense of the self or ego self, is taking more of a back seat for the most part. And that mindfulness, the, which is the carrier of the wisdom and the clarity, and the discernment is actually more in the foreground. And what that means is that there's less we actually have to do or be bothered by. Because the only time that we feel uh, some stress and some conflict and struggle and, and difficulty, which is what we feel when the, when the hindrances are strong, we, it's when the, with the ego, the ego self is strong. And with that quieter, with that a little bit more in the background and with, with this mindfulness more central, it's easier. It, things are easier. This is, this is what brings about a certain uh, calmness or tranquility or ease because we're not in so much conflict with our experience. There's only one, one, one that is in conflict with experience, and that is this self, this solid sense of ourself, or I call ego self. 
And so it's so lovely, and it's really lovely for me to sit with people and guide people when this self isn't so strong, when the, when the mindfulness is illuminating experience in such a beautiful way and, and people see so clearly what's actually happening almost without the, with, on the other side of the uh, habitual tendencies or the ways we get so on automatic with our habits. But we actually, the sense of being more settled back into the mindfulness and being able to see, oh yeah, oh, I do that, or oh, I saw myself do this, or you know, I got caught up in that. But, but there's so much more clarity about that which means that this, this kind of the changing of the guards. And it probably, I was also probably um, thinking of that because this is one of my favorite uh, quotes from Shanti Deva, who, um, who there's a, a, it's called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and it was Shanti Deva's teachings uh, from, the, from Tibet, translated by Stephen Batchelor. It goes like this, those who wish to guard their practice should very attentively guard their minds. For those who do not guard their minds will be unable to guard their practice. And then it goes on, he says, in this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. (laughs) This unleashed elephant. It's a great image, huh? I mean, when an elephant is unleashed, I mean, we've all had that kind of experience. And then he says, but if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. It's such an such a inspiring aspiration for a practice that all fears will cease to exist, and all virtues will come into my hand. You know, all these beautiful qualities of mind and heart, when the fear, the fear, this self, this sense of a separate, Uh, isolated self that is so frightened in this world of subject-object, this duality. And that starts to subside and all these beautiful qualities that we are experiencing and practicing with now, these qualities of mindfulness and heartfulness, as Gil says, bodyfulness, the generosity, the loving-kindness, the compassion. Truthfulness, our our ways we're practicing with our sila or morality, all these beautiful expressions come come forward, come into our hands as the self starts to subside. So this rope of mindfulness, it seems that, you know, it's almost for me over these many years of my practice, Mindfulness, this understanding what mindfulness is, you know, it's taken, it just continues to open up for me all over the years. You know, in the beginning, I thought I knew what mindfulness was. Then I went through a few years, I had no idea what mindfulness was. 
I thought I was practicing, and now I didn't know if I was practicing, and then I thought I knew again, and then it expanded, then it opened, and it just keeps getting more clear. What is this rope of mindfulness? How does it guard us? How does it guard and protect us? I mean, one way of talking about this rope of mindfulness and how it guards us is it actually protects us from falling into the extremes of our mind. These extremes of the strong desire on the one hand, uh, the intensity of that greed and desire, and the strong intensity of aversion and hate and not wanting on the other hand. And just how we can get pulled, how when we're caught up in this selfing, we feel pulled in different directions by these forces of our mind. And mindfulness, when mindfulness comes to the fore and starts to take charge, it doesn't have as much power, those forces don't have as much power to pull us around in the same way. And then as mindfulness becomes stronger and is in the center, those those forces of mind may still play out, but they just don't have the same power. We have more wisdom, we have more strength, we have more um, capacity to make different choices for ourselves. It protects us from our mind, as Shanti Deva says. And as it protects us and becomes more in the center, the mindfulness is what guides us towards deeper and deeper states of equanimity. Because it's the equanimity that actually is the mind that is not reactive. Equanimity is a mind that is still. It's not in reaction to what's happening. That quality, that that factor of mind that is at rest, it is at peace with what's occurring in the field of awareness. And this equanimity, we might say, really is kind of the foundation of the awakened mind. Sometimes we say the ground. Some people don't like that word so well because it kind of implies something, you know, where we can land, like there is actually a ground. But I kind of like, the word's okay for me, this kind of the ground or or that which underlies uh, the awakened mind. Because sometimes it does feel like there is a resting place or, or some place, not a place, you know, this is where we can't really use words so well, but that there is some way to abide in a peaceful, more tranquil place in ourselves. And it's because this equanimity is so still, it has a mirror-like quality, meaning that it reflects, it has the reflective uh, a quality to, to see what is happening very clearly. It has that radiance, that brightness, that kind of illuminating quality of mind because it's not moving. It's not shake, shaken up by the desires and the aversion and all the wanting and not wanting that we can get so caught up in, the attachment to our preferences. So when the mind, this mindfulness is still, 
we can feel this quality of equanimity, this, this balance, this peacefulness, underlying, underlying the conditions that are actually occurring. And it's from here, when we're not in conflict with, we're not in struggle with these conditions in a, in a deeper place uh, within ourselves, this is where conditions just can spring up and fall back, spring up and fall back, just the way that they do in this world, in this world where, where conditions actually do spring up and fall back, this world in which we live. And then when this equanimity is present, we don't get so lost in the conditions that are arising, that are appearing, that are dissolving. We're not lost. We're not so confused. We see with that mirror-like quality of mind, we see what's happening. This unmoving stillness. There's a little story that I like that I don't know, for some reason, it's a contemporary folktale and it kind of exemplifies this equanimity in an interesting kind of way. It's called The Farmer and the Businessman. A businessman needing to attend a conference in a faraway city decided to travel on country roads rather than freeways so he could enjoy a relaxing journey. After some hours of traveling, he realized he was hopelessly lost Seeing a farmer tending his field on the side of the road, he stopped to ask for directions. Can you tell me how far it is to Chicago, he asked the farmer. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer replied. Well, can you tell me how far I am from New York, the businessman questioned again. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer again replied. Well, can you at least tell me the quickest way to the main road, the exasperated businessman asked. No, I don't rightly know, the farmer again answered. You don't really know very much at all, do you, blurted the impatient businessman. And the farmer calmly answered, Nope, but I ain't lost. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of how it is, right? You're okay just where you are. <laughs> in this case, even you know, with this exasperated, impatient person, you know, thinking that you're supposed to know everything, you know. Just calm, easy going. I ain't lost. And it's that kind of feeling, no matter what's going on around around us, within us, there's a sense of not being lost. And then we can open to the conditions of our life with grace. There's a gracefulness there. There's a dignity there. We're not thrown off. We don't feel so shaky and unstable. And even if we do feel shaky and unstable, there's still somewhere where we can kind of feel and sense into ourselves that is not shaky and unstable. And that just keeps growing and growing and growing as mindfulness becomes more and more in charge, on guard, in the center. So we are on this path, this this retreat. We've been speaking about this 
uh, path of liberative, dependent origination, this very exotic kind of label for, for these teachings. And this path is unfolding for us. And you can see, I want to talk a little bit uh, right now about how this is, it's a very kind of classical unfolding that we can recognize in our own practice. And what we see first is that the hindrances die away. They're just not as strong. And so as these hindrances die away, we feel more here. We just have a sense of that, you know, more uh, stability, more capacity to be with experience as it is. And this is really the big shift in our practice. When the hindrances die away and we can start to actually see what's going on, the mind becomes quieter, the mind becomes a little bit more calm. Sometimes the mind even stops. You know, you have experiences where the mind isn't impinging at all. Maybe it's just for a moment, but that's pretty cool. You know, when you really say, yeah, wow, you know, I'm really not being bothered by my mind right now. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Not that many people in the world know that experience. And to actually know it and recognize it, it's very wonderful. And when the mind is quieter, we're more connected to the objects of, of awareness, or we're more connected to our momentary experience. We have, we have more of a sense of what's actually going on. And this, this, at this point in our practice, it's called momentary concentration, because there is more of that one-pointed attention, more of the one-pointed connection. And it's called momentary concentration because it may not be so stable, right? You know, there are periods of time where you have more of that sense of connection, and then it may break apart, and then the mind is a little busier, or other, you know, some of the hindrances return. But then because there's enough stability in the practice, that uh, calmness, that tranquility, that that, uh, quietness isn't so far away. It can can return pretty easily, too. So we may find ourselves moving uh, in and out of those different kinds of uh, mind states. But when we have this momentary concentration, we can feel this very immense satisfaction. You know, this is what Donald was speaking about, this delight. There's a kind of delight in the satisfaction. When we start to feel more calm and at ease, more tranquil, more connected, the mind is more one-pointed, the mind gets more quiet. There's a tremendous satisfaction that we feel from that. So this, this begins, this, this is the sequence that we've been speaking about. So the Buddha says it like this, this, this uh, uh, teaching that we're giving is from the Sutta Napata, one of the discourses, uh, uh, collected discourses of the Buddha. And the Buddha puts it like this. Seeing that the five hindrances have been abandoned within him, he becomes gladdened or delighted. Glad he becomes enraptured, which what Gil was talking about last night, this rapture or this joy. Enraptured, her body grows tranquil. Her body tranquil, she is sensitive to pleasure. 
She is sensitive to pleasure. So as the tranquility comes in more, the pleasure starts to come. This pleasure, this sukha, this was called sweet sukha. Sweet, sweet sukha, where there's, there's just a real sweet, kind of sweet happiness. It's not the, the rapture or the joy. Isn't, it's not so uh, uh, intense or, or gross or strong as joy or rapture can be. And, and I'm going to talk a little more about that. It's a meditative state, this meditative state of, of rapture. Whereas it calms down, we feel a little bit more tranquility, then the happiness, this sweet happiness comes. And then we really start to taste what these teachings are starting to point to, this release, the release from the, the grosser conditions of the mind and the body. We start to feel a, even a deeper peace, a deeper happiness. So we begin with the mindfulness and the discernment, these very important qua- uh, factors in our practice. Actually, when we talk about mindfulness, we're actually... In, in the text, you're actually talking about mindfulness and discernment together, which is satisapajanya. And the discernment aspect of the mindfulness means that we actually can tell the difference between this and that. I know the difference between a sound and a sight, or a sensation and a thought, or uh, a, uh, a man and a woman, or night and day. You know, I can actually discern. So not just that I there's the mindfulness of contact with something occurring, I actually know what's occurring. So there's that quality of being able to know. So we have this mindfulness, this discernment with the energy, this factor of energy, which is so important to propel our practice forward. And as we meditate and as we practice, the energy starts to build and the energy can be turned in towards our meditation and towards our practice kind of feeds on itself. And as there's then more energy builds, we, we, more, more clarity, more, more uh, uh, mindful, mindfulness is stronger, that turns back, the energy turns back, gets stronger and stronger. So this is really when our practice starts opening up. And this is the value of a long retreat where we can actually start getting into some of these more refined uh, uh, aspects of our meditation practice where the uh, energy can really be turned towards insight, towards seeing more deeply than maybe we have ever seen before. Such an amazing opportunity for us to have this uh, refinement of our mind. If the hindrances drop away, to have the, have be, be clear about what we're actually practicing and then to have energy for the practice. So as we, as we start to settle in this way, we start releasing a lot of energy through the mind. This is uh, from Robert Thurman, who is a scholar uh, of Tibetan Buddhist studies, very well-known Uh, teacher, scholar, practitioner. So he says, um, he says, in the normal cycling of thought, we have lots of very little uh, tight circuits that pattern our thinking. A lot of energy is tied up in those patterns. It's just like, like they're, like they're tight, tight circuits. And they, and we don't realize how much energy is actually bound up in those. 
So he says, so when we come to meditate and begin to slow the thinking pattern down or even abandon the thoughts and see them float away, this can tend to be a powerful experience for us to suddenly be suspended in space, time, for a few moments of our life without thinking about what we are doing. Suddenly there is so much more energy released by getting out of that tight little circuit. We can feel calm or we can feel like we're floating. And then he says, we might even feel like we've attained something. (laughs) It's a little caveat there. But it's a good reflection, you know, that that's one of the things that starts to happen when the mind starts to quiet down. All that energy that was bound up in those habits starts to get released. And it gets released and turned towards the concentration, towards the meditation. And so we, we can have stronger meditative experiences. So as, as uh, Gil was introducing last night, after the, the delight, then the raptures. So one of the in, more intense experiences that we can have is this uh, meditative rapture as this energy starts to get released. There can be like waves of this rapture in the consciousness and in the mind, the body. Uh, it can feel like waves of this uh, rapture. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the um, monks who translates so many of these teachings for us so beautifully, he says, this rapture is like a joyous refreshment. Isn't that lovely? It's like a refreshment. He says, it brings an elating thrill bordering on ecstasy crowning the yogin's previous endeavors and inspiring further effort. So again, this energy is what can lead us forward. And one time when I, in a Dharma talk, somebody uh, read these five kinds of rapture, and I really liked hearing it, so I want to read uh, for you these five kinds of rapture. Because it really shows, in a way, how kind of very, very uh, precise these different experiences become as we become more settled. This is from the commentaries of the Buddhist text. So the first one is called minor rapture. And it's the lowest on the scale, and it's said to be able to raise the hairs of the body. (laughs) You just, you know, it's just that kind of tingling, you know, uh, feeling where just the hairs are raised on the body. I think we've all kind of known that. Then the next one is momentary rapture, which is the ru- it rushes through the body with an intensity likened to streaks of lightning flashing forth in the sky at different moments. So it can just be these streaks. And uh, in uh, some traditions, it can also be called the kriyas. Maybe you've heard of the kriyas, where there's just kind of like electrical uh, releases that come through the body. It's, a, it's a, called momentary rapture. And the third is called showering rapture, which breaks over the body again and again with considerable force, like the waves on the seashore breaking upon the beach. Now, you might think this is really ecstatic. I'm going to say something about that later. It doesn't necessarily mean it's so pleasant. Um, 
And the fourth one is uplifting rapture. And it's so called because it is uh, credited with the ability to cause the body to levitate. Now, I haven't really witnessed um, too many people uh, having uplifting rapture. I've, I've heard, I've read, read about it, but I haven't really witnessed it. And then um, the last one is called pervading rapture, which is the highest on the scale. And it's said to completely fill the whole body as a huge inundation fills a rock cavern. So it's, it's very bright, very radiant, uh, very solid. And that's uh, mostly when you're in a more ab- absorbed state of consciousness, a very strong uh, state of consciousness. It doesn't come very often. So I wanted to kind of mention these um, uh, pleasurable, since we're in more of these uh, so-called uh, pleasurable realms that we're talking about in this path now. What I want to point out, though, is that we can get attached, right? You know, no, it doesn't mean that the mind is free of clinging. The mind is going to be free of the patterns of clinging and also aversion. So we have to really be careful because sometimes, particularly with rapture, it can actually be quite unpleasant because it's so intense at times, because it's so strong. It can actually feel really, really uncomfortable. I remember one time when I was doing a long retreat and my concentration was strong, I got into about a week where um, it felt like there were ants underneath the surface of my skin, just below the surface of my skin. For about, and I just had all this kind of, it felt like internal itching and agitation. And it was horrible. It was just so, so unpleasant. And I had to just really work with my mind. I had to work with aversion and uh, this sense of really hating my experience. And, you know, and I was, you know, this is because I was really wanting my mind to be so concentrated. And then I didn't know at the time that it could turn into these very unpleasant experiences. No one kind of warned me about that. But it can, you know, we get into these more uh, so-called refined meditative experiences, sometimes it's quite unpleasant. And they can spill over into restlessness and agitation. Just the quality, because it's coarse, it's kind of a coarse and still somewhat of a gross state compared to Nibbana, you know, compared to the, the awakened mind. So it's just a, it's because it's just an experience. So we need to be really watchful of our, of our relationship, as Gil was speaking this morning. At every point in the journey, it's really not about the experience that we're having. It's about the, the, t- the tendency towards clinging and grasping. Is there a way we're attaching on to our experience, or is there a way we don't want it, that we're pushing it away? And it can happen at every point in our, in our meditative experiences. If there is aversion in the mind towards what's occurring, this in itself will bring about more restlessness and agitation. It's the, the restlessness will, can feed and uh, fuel more restlessness if this isn't really seen. And so it's so important to really bring the... Uh, into our mindfulness, 
these qualities, the quality of mind at every point. What is the quality of mind? What is the attitude of mind in which, with which I'm meditating? Because it is, it is the refinement of the mind, the actual refinement of the forces of clinging that, that, that br- allow the movement to go forward along the path. This is what actually fuels that forward prope- uh, uh, propelling, is the reduction of the clinging, of the grasping. And so often what can happen is we can get seduced by these experiences that we start having, whatever, wherever we are on the path. If they're, they're very lovely, the tranquility and the calm, the, when the mind gets quiet, when we feel some satisfaction, when we feel more of the, the stronger experiences of rapture, um, whatever it is, there's still the patterns, the tendencies of clinging, which is really what this practice is about. How are we being with what's happening? If we're having a strong experience and we're resisting it, we actually start to push up against our experience. There's a way we start to use that energy. We turn our energy and then we're trying to use the energy to to push the experience that we're having away. And we kind of divide ourselves like that. Then that, then that experience, in this case, may be rapture that feels too uncomfortable. If the aversion is strong, we start to push on it. I don't want it. I don't like it. And we're just reinforcing it. We're just strengthening it. And so if the aversion isn't seen, or on the other side, the attachment, we're just strengthening the very thing that we're wanting to release so important to bring those, um, those qualities of mind, uh, they're not qualities, the, the forces of mind, of, of, of desire and aversion, to continually bring the mindfulness. That becomes more and more subtle in our experience. Sometimes we might find that when we really like what's happening, we can become over-exuberant, right? You know, some of you have experienced that. You get very excited. You know, it's like, it's great. Oh, you know, you, this sense of now it's happening. You know, now my, my practice is finally getting somewhere. And there can be a lot of excitement in the mind. And then we don't really see or understand that that excitement is just more restlessness. It's, it's a kind of anxiety. And it's filled, it's filled with some attachment because we think it, we, we're, we're, there's some fear that that experience is going to go away. Especially if we think it's an it, right? If we think it's an it and that's something that we can have and possess, we're really going to be in trouble because all experiences go away. All experiences come and then they go. So when we get very excited, we may not sense or feel the, the kind of attachment that's there. So again, this this needs to be seen. Sometimes even when we get what we want, we can actually start getting afraid of it. This happens too sometimes. In the early days when I was practicing, I remember uh, uh, there was a a period of time 
where my concentration was very strong. I was really practicing hard at the three-month retreats that I did at the Insight Meditation Society. And I remember this one time that I'm just sitting there, you know, minding my own business, just doing my practice, and my mind just stopped. It was just like there was no more, there was no, it didn't seem like there was anyone there because I always identified myself through my mind. So when my thoughts stopped, it was like I wasn't there anymore. And then there really wasn't so much of a sense of my body, and then it was like, oh, is this it? You know, this strong sense, like, really thinking, this must be it, you know, because I was, didn't seem like I was there. But then there was the one, right, the one who was going, is this it? And then there became, I became aware of that, and then I got really scared. It was like, well, if this is it, where am I, you know, and then am I never going to come back, and (laughs) the whole kind of way that we can start to create something out of our experience, and I got really, really scared. And I remember a few times that happening, and then it would be like the rug got pulled out, and I didn't know where I was, and of course, you come right back, right, because there's so much anxiety and fear that I'm there again. So, but I, but in in every way, we can feel the, the, where the, the, the anxiety or the restlessness or the aversion or the desire, all these, these, these hindrances, they're, they're, they're different quality of hindrances because they're not actually blocking. We're not, we're not so lost in them, we're more seeing them. There's more anxiety now, there's more attachment, or there's a little more clarity around when these still come. But we still have to be mindful, still have to attend. There's any clinging at all. This is where we have to pay attention. So as this rapture gets more refined and we're noticing the quality of the attachment and the aversion and we're not feeding that, then this is what ushers in the tranquility, the next factor on the path. Because we're not feeding the the energy, we're not feeding it with the anxiety or the restlessness or attachment. It's just releasing. The energy is releasing. And as it releases, what comes next is more tranquility. And it's the tranquility that removes the agitation and restlessness. And as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, it's like um, when the tranquility comes, it's like offering cool shade from the afternoon, the hot afternoon sun. Now we just feel the cool, the coolness of that tranquility, and it's not a sluggish tranquility. Sometimes when we think of calm or tranquil, we can also you can imagine that maybe there's a little uh, tiredness in it, or you can get tired or sleepy, but it's a very easeful, just calm and easeful uh, kind of state where no hindrances, there's no hindrances in it, and because there's no hindrances in it then it can usher in the next factor, which is the happiness, that sweet sukha, which sometimes is called the happiness of the Buddha. It's a taste of that happiness. There's no hindrances. There's really nothing impinging. And it's so sweet, so easeful. And yet, these are still mind states. It's not it. You know, nowhere along this path yet. 
we're going there, we're getting there. You know, that's where this path is leading. It's leading to full awakening, you know, full liberation, the full heart's release. And when we talk about the heart's release, we're talking about the release of clinging. That, that full release of needing anything to be a certain way, to the full release of our preferences, of the I, that I, the one who is in, usually in the center stage, the one who is directing and controlling and manipulating and wanting and not wanting, that one, that one starts to die away. That one starts to get quiet. And as Shantideva says, all fear will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand as all this settles down. It's this release of clinging that ushers in Nibbana, that ushers in the freedom. And when we speak about that, we're back to the equanimity. This, where the mind is so still, this mind that is so at peace, this what's called the firm ground of our being. And it's this equanimity which really gives us strength to face the immensity of our life because when we awaken to life, we see what it is, which is this, these changing conditions that are on this continuum of intense pleasure and intense pain. And that's how it's going to be. That's how the conditions of this world are. And so to be able to meet that requires a deep, deep stability and a capacity to be still in the face of all of that. And as we practice, this gets stronger and stronger and stronger for us. And we know that these conditions in our life are not stable. They're changing all the time. Things can can break up at any minute. Ajahn Chah, uh, the, the forest monks, talks about it as drinking from life's cup, knowing that the cup can shatter at any moment. But yet we're, we're here, we're, we're present, we're ready. We haven't moved. This wonderful um, uh, t- way that it's uh, Ajahn Chah's quote is, is put. He says, um, uh, this says, once a Westerner asked Ajahn Chah, a great Thai, the great Thai teacher, why he had so many material things in his room. And he replied, you see this glass? To me, it is already broken. While it is still intact, on the table, I use it. It even has beautiful colors when the sun shines on it and a lovely sound when I hit it with a spoon. But for me, it is already broken. Already broken. So when we come into that realization, that recognition, where are you? Where are you as things break apart? 
this is what we're practicing. How can we stay here? As Gil was talking this morning in the instructions when he was encouraging you to reflect on how do you practice? How are you practicing? What's filling your mind as you practice? We're wanting to cultivate the right attitude for our practice. And a right attitude means it's an attitude that is free of greed, free of aversion, free of delusion. When we're not trying to create anything or manipulate our experience, this is what frees us from greed. When we're not rejecting our experience, this is what frees us from aversion. When we're not falling into forgetting, to not knowing what's actually happening, this is what frees us from delusion. This is what we're practicing. Then the mind can be more relaxed, open, allowing, awake, alert, present with what is, just to what is, in this changing landscape of our mind. Even when we get into these more exalted kinds of meditative states, even then, not trying to hold on to anything, not trying to manipulate or reject, can we bear it? Can we just be here without getting so caught up in it? Just let it, let it move. There's a Tibetan saying that when there's no clinging, whatever arises is naturally freed. When there's no clinging, whatever arises is naturally freed. It's nothing we have to do. It'll free itself. It self-liberates. Things self-liberate when we're not interfering. So our job is to see if we can stay here for this amazing show, this amazing display. And then the path unfolds by itself. And as this path unfolds, then we can discover the sweet happiness of the Buddha. This is what we're doing all these difficult practices for. So let's just sit for a moment. If the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.